Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, The Ministry of Our Lord, with a message entitled, Divorce and the Law of God. So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 9, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. live in a day when one misspoken word can very easily condemn a person and utterly ruin a reputation, especially because everything that people now say in public is duly recorded, and things they say on the various social media platforms apparently are there as a record that can never be removed. And anyone who decides to ruin someone's reputation often has to do no more than simply go through an archive of what that person has said and find that one thing that can blacken their reputation and turn whatever followers they had against them. It's hard to live in such an environment. I mean, for one, no forgiveness is ever offered. For another, I mean, we have to think that he who lives by that sword may find that they also die by that sword. That is, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You know, if we want a world where every word is parsed and dissected to find out what are the dog whistles or what are the hints of underlying darkness in their heart, well then, if we do that to others, expect others to also do that to us. And in this way, we not only savage others, others will savage us and no one is to be trusted. You know, we have noticed that as we began this short series on Matthew 19 and 20, Jesus is in Perea. He's on his way to Jerusalem. The crowds are overwhelmed with anticipation. Is this the long-expected Messiah? Will he go to Jerusalem for Passover and become a deliverer for the people of Israel? And as expectations grow, the religious elite in Israel is becoming increasingly alarmed. They don't like this Jesus. They'll do anything they can to stop him. And so, as he's making his way to Jerusalem, the Pharisees seek to get him to say something that will discredit him and at the very least divide the crowd. And so, as we read Matthew 19, we discover they found the perfect thing to ask. And once he answers, they think his reputation will be damaged. They're going to ask him about divorce. And just like in our day, the question, if it's asked among Christians, can be divisive. And so at the very least, the question about divorce is intended to drive a wedge between his followers, those that agree with him and those that don't. And more questions are going to follow later, and at least this is how the Pharisees think that once he has answered this question, well, we've got more questions, and fairly soon the crowd will be divided about any number of things. And so in the future, all the Pharisees are going to have to do is remind the crowd what Jesus had once said about one of those controversial subjects. Now, before we read our passage, let's do a little background on this matter of divorce as it was discussed among the Jews at the time of Jesus. There were two prominent views that had been advanced by two very prominent rabbis. The passage from the law that had caused the debate was found in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. And that passage says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and then so forth. And so the debate among the rabbis was what the indecency that Moses spoke of actually referred to. 
If Moses allowed for a man to divorce his wife for indecency, what then is the ground for divorce? Rabbi Hillel was a rabbi that many of us in our day would consider more liberal. According to Hillel, in his own words, the husband could divorce his wife if she served him food that had been burned, or if she talked so loud at home that the neighbors could hear. So as far as Hillel was concerned, the indecency that the husband might find was anything that was improper or indecent or offensive or shameful. It was up to the husband to decide what it was. Now, of course, that view gave the husband rights that were unbridled, and there were many who actually agreed with Hillel. But there was another rabbi, his name was Rabbi Shemai, and he held the view that the only indecency which Moses referred to was adultery. And so apart from adultery, there would be no divorce. Now, I think the Pharisees chose this question about divorce because in their estimation, this was a divisive question. If Jesus agreed with Hillel, the Pharisees might be able to accuse him of making mockery of the law of God. So how could this man be the Messiah? If, on the other hand, he agreed with the more strict interpretation of Shammai, well, what would his followers say? Those sinners, those gluttons, those prostitutes, and those ne'er-do-wells that so loved him? Well, he'd surely alienate them. Well, furthermore, in today's teaching, I'm not going to get to verse 10, but when we get to that verse, we're going to see the shock of the disciples. They listen to Jesus' answer, and they're shocked. So it seems to me that they were more likely to agree with the more liberal interpretation of Hillel, and that's what the Pharisees were counting on. However, Jesus answered, something was going to stick, and he'd be unpopular. And by the way, this attitude in which a leader expresses an opinion that might divide has been the way in which leaders have always been taken down. And the sad fact is that because of this, many a Christian leader has stopped talking about things that might divide. You know, they try to remain as safe as they can and avoid all controversy, just trying to survive. Well, of course, the problem with that is that, you know, they never have anything that's meaningful or interesting or life-changing or challenging to say. They never force people to change their minds and their hearts on something. So what's the solution? I mean, should Christian pastors and Bible teachers simply become controversial? I mean, with a, you know, devil-may-care attitude, not concerned what's going to happen after they'd spoken. Well, hardly. That's not the attitude. I once had a mentor who taught me to stand behind the shield of Scripture, he said. He used to say, let people, when they hear you, argue not with you, but argue with the Word. Have them stop and answer, did I get the Bible wrong? Show me then where I've made my error. That's the weapon of every Christian leader. If we limit our expressions to what Scripture says, we then make Scripture and not ourselves a center of the conversation and of the controversy. What's so amazing about Matthew 19 is that Jesus, who is the Son of God, who is, if you will, the Word made flesh, the walking Bible, he still references the written Bible. And that should tell us something about what we should do. Well, with all that said, let's begin to read our text. I'm reading Matthew 19, 3 to 6. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
So please notice how the Pharisees phrased the question. Is it lawful to divorce for any cause? See, they're forcing Jesus to choose either Rabbi Hillel or Rabbi Shammai, or if he wants, to even be stricter than Shammai. Go ahead, they're taunting him. Declare yourself and let's watch as the fireworks begin after this. Notice how Jesus begins his answer. Have you not read? See, he completely ignores the debates of the rabbis. He goes directly to scripture itself. And by the way, that answer should be a model, not just for Christian teachers, but for all Christians. What's your view on homosexuality? What's your view on race relations? What's your view on women as teaching pastors? What's your view of the transgender movement? What's your view of those who die and they're good people? but they've never surrendered their lives to Christ? Or what's your view of other religions? Or what's your view of, and you fill in the blank. As you can see, there is no shortage of controversial subjects that get people into trouble. So how did Jesus handle this? Well, he started by saying, have you not read? In this discussion meant to divide, meant to light the flame of controversy, And given that there was no way around the discussion but to face it head on, Jesus says, have you not read? And of course, in this case, Jesus is saying, look, I do know that you want me to launch into a discussion of Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 and weigh in on it, but in truth, you want me to give an opinion on that without also reading what the whole Bible has to say on this subject. Haven't you read Genesis 1.27. Haven't you read Genesis 2.24? You see, Genesis 1.27 says that God created man in his own image, and by man, the Bible says, it means male and female. And then Genesis 2.24 says that a man shall leave his father and mother. They won't see father and mother as a primary relationship, but rather a new primary relationship is formed between a man and his wife. Have you been reading those texts, Jesus asks? Is it your Bible study that's left you so confused? Or are you asking this question for another reason? A donor recently wrote, I decided to give because your ministry is one that can be trusted when it comes to teaching the Bible. It's really that simple. Well, this past month as a ministry, we placed an emphasis upon the critical importance of identifying Bible teaching you can trust. Well, this month, our hope is to reinforce the importance of not only identifying trustworthy teaching, but the importance of sharing those life-changing truths with others. This month, we placed an emphasis on the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 11 for the purpose of restating our commitment to faithfully obeying the biblical charge to serve with all of our hearts and to teach the Bible with fervor. Our prayer is that you will join us in this effort. Your gifts, your prayers are critical in this day and for this purpose. To offer a gift today or to find out about our new initiative, the 1119 Fellowship, visit backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. When Jesus pointed out Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24, Jesus then teaches how these texts are to be understood or the implications of this passage. It is God who has joined the man and the woman, for this was his design in the creation. 
Marriage is not a human institution. It's a divine institution. And if God has joined them together, who are you that you should think that you can dissolve this? I think that's important for us to hear in our day. You know, I sometimes hear couples say, you know, we just grew apart. We had different interests. As we aged, we changed and we realized we're different people than the ones we were when we got married. So now it's time to simply move on. See, according to Jesus, if you do that, you're sinning against God, straight up. Look, let me use myself and my wife as an example. You know, we've been married for a long time now. We were super young when we got married, and we're very different people now. Well, of course, we're still the unique people that we always were, created in God's image, and who love Christ. But I've noticed that over the years, Kathy has gotten increasingly more beautiful, and I've noticed that over the years, I've gotten more frumpy and dumpy. And yeah, of course, we've changed, remarkably so. But a bond of union means that we're changing together, constantly coming to terms with what we're becoming together and what that means in our relationship. See, I don't think it is possible to read Jesus at this point and come to any other conclusion that he believed and taught that marriage was an indissoluble union. There's no other conclusion than that. What God has joined together, let man not separate, straight up. Well, then I could almost imagine that you could have heard a pin drop in the place. He said, what? And even the Pharisees are shocked. Jesus has just said, God the Father never wants divorce, never. Divorce, whatever and whenever it happens, is always the result of violating the divine will every single time. And that leads us to the end of the discussion. It's in verses 7 to 9. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Let's take it one step at a time. Immediately after Jesus had said what he said, Prefaced by, have you not read Genesis 1 and 2? The Pharisees, in effect, say, yeah, but have you not read Deuteronomy 24 verse 1? Now, if you've been around theological circles as long as I have, you might have recognized this technique. Instead of engaging in the text itself, we simply leave it, we go somewhere else, until we find a text that's more suitable to what we already believe. But if you believe in the unity of the whole Bible, you won't do that. You come to a conviction that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It speaks as a unity. You don't have to choose your favorite text. All you get to do is to decide whether or not you're going to be obedient to the entire Word of God or not. But nonetheless, Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 is still there. But notice also that the Pharisees mentioned that Moses had commanded for a certificate of divorce to be given. So what was that? Well, the reason for the necessity of the certificate was to give sober pause for thought. You see, you couldn't just say, I divorce you three times, and then the marriage is over. See, the very necessity of the certificate meant that Moses was doing everything he could to slow the process down, allowing for thought and perhaps even time to rescue the marriage. But we also know from the Mishnah, which, by the way, was put together after Jesus, but those teachings were around during the time of Jesus, that the certificate of divorce not only ended the marriage, 
but it also gave the acceptable requirements for remarriage. And so, at least from the perspective of the Mishnah, a certificate of divorce meant that there were no obligations left over from the marriage. It was now fully dissolved, and one was then to be thought of as unmarried in every way. So, given this understanding of the certificate of divorce, the Pharisees say, and yet, you say that the marriage is indissoluble, and here in Moses, we have a certificate of divorce. And so without arguing whether their understanding of the certificate was correct or not, and I have to assume that both Jesus and the Pharisees fully understood the nature of the certificate, Jesus says, Moses didn't command this, he permitted it. And more so, he permitted it because of the hardness of your heart. So we need to stop here and ask, what did Jesus mean by saying your hearts are hard? See, at the outset, I don't think it's necessary to say that Jesus implied that both parties of necessity had a hard heart. I need to emphasize that point. There are cases where one person is the cause for the divorce and not the other. Please don't make the error and the error that many have fallen into that it's always a 50-50 deal. Indeed, I've heard one pastor say, you know, when one person commits adultery and so ends the marriage, well, the other person also needs to take their responsibility for being less than loving. See, that's shocking, and that's untrue. The person who commits adultery is 100% responsible for the adultery. But let's get back to the hard heart. A hard heart is a heart that rebels against God. Rebellion against God does affect marriage. Some people with hard hearts will irretrievably damage their marriage. That's why Moses allowed for this, because he knew how much damage some would do in their marriage. But then Jesus adds, it was not so from the beginning. That is, it was not so in Genesis 1 and 2 when God instituted marriage. If you want to know God's will, says Jesus, it's that marriages should never end, except, of course, by death alone. To fail to teach this and instead to put the emphasis on the allowance that God makes to the harm and damage that people do to each other, well, to do that is to miss the point. Failure to teach the nature of enduring lifelong marriage is to neglect God's emphasis. But yes, says Jesus, it is true God does permit divorce. But wherever it's permitted, it's a violation of the Creator's intention. That has to be admitted. See, in some cases, both parties in the marriage are equally to blame, but in some cases, one party must carry the lion's share of the blame. But in all cases, in every one of them, the divorce came about because of hard hearts or a hard heart that would not submit to God's law and his will. Now then, having said that, Jesus adds that which is commonly called the exception clause. In essence, what Jesus does here is take issue with Rabbi Hillel and side with Rabbi Shammai. Hillel is wrong when he says anything displeasing in your wife is sufficient for divorce. Not so. But since he did mention the hard heart, Jesus mentions what breaks a marriage. The Greek word that Matthew has chosen to translate Jesus' words is the Greek word porneia. Our Bible translates it as sexual immorality. But in our text specifically, it must mean sex with someone other than your spouse. But go to the end of the verse, and marries another. See, that refers to what was stated in the certificate of divorce. Once the certificate is given, the divorce is not only complete, remarriage is allowed. 
See, Jesus is saying remarriage is allowed for but one reason. And notice he's saying, I won't permit remarriage for the cause that you've grown apart, or you don't have anything in common anymore, or you don't like each other. Look, I allow it for but one reason, sexual uncleanness. And we need to acknowledge here that there is more to say. You know, some may ask that, you know, if my unbelieving partner leaves, or if there's been abuse, what then? Now, they're very important questions, but because of this text, I'm not going to address that issue, but only the issue of adultery here. See, adultery is such a vile thing that Jesus, who holds the highest view of marriage possible, will say, in the case of adultery, it is possible that the marriage ends. No open marriages, no excuses, no appeal to, I just made a mistake. Rather, marriage means a man and a woman enjoy relations with each other exclusively and with none other. What have we learned? See, the Pharisees are looking for a way to separate Jesus from his followers by getting him to speak about controversial subjects. Jesus knows it's important to address controversial subjects, but he also knows that the only way to address them is by going to Scripture and teaching the intention of Scripture. Not what is my church always taught, not what is my tradition, but what does the Word of God actually say? God's word can't be broken. And Jesus is saying this topic and any other, the answer to these topics must be found in the pages of Holy Writ. And it is there that those who are faithful to our Lord will submit their souls. That's Jesus' position and that should be ours. Thanks so much, John. You know. I got to say, I remember a day when divorce caused real deep concern and questions, and now, well, often even within the church, it just seems like it's just a matter of fact. Yeah, it's amazing how these things have changed. I mean, there was one point in time where we only heaped scorn on people who were divorced and didn't even ask hard questions about how the divorce came to be or, you know, who was guilty and who was innocent. We just just condemned all uh, completely. And now we've come to a day where it's so commonplace, uh, where it's, you know, very often not even dealt with at all. So I'm calling us back to Scripture to help us to gain a high view of marriage, that whenever there's a divorce, it's always sin. Now, it doesn't mean they're both sinning, but it's always sin. What God has joined together, he says, we must not separate. Now, in many cases, I mean, one person, let's say through an act of adultery, does separate it, and therefore it's irreparable, but we should gain that sense of shock all over again and begin to highlight the importance of marriage. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. This month, we celebrate the commitment of our monthly partners with the launching of a new monthly partner initiative, the 1119 Fellowship. Based in Deuteronomy, the 1119 Fellowship is critical to our continued efforts to share the gospel with a new generation and to help teach in a way that can be trusted and that will build a firm foundation for a life in Christ. As of this past July, we celebrate 674 monthly partners, all committed to sustaining and growing the mission of Bible teaching you can trust. In the months ahead, we're asking you to join our monthly partner, 1119 Fellowship, as we march toward 1,000 participants. Join us this month, become a part of the 1119 Fellowship, and for more information or to sign up today, 
visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or simply give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Together, let us ensure that the Word of God is being declared to a new generation.